Only with the benefit of hindsight can we hope to know the real impact of lockdowns on the economy and the nation's mental health. Will Australia's strategy for reopening, the pathway we're carving out in this brave new world, do the job of balancing health outcomes with growth and prosperity for all? Am I sounding cynical? Are we actually being given the whole story? How well are we managing the health and economic trade-offs and what might the next few months look like? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecast report, which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au With half the country in lockdown and Sydney just completing its third month, much has been made about the vaccination targets of 70% and 80% of eligible adults being our golden ticket to freedom. But what does this mean? Lockdown's a thing of the past? Get your passports ready and book your overseas trip? Not so fast. This vaccination pathway carrot that's been dangled in front of us is scant on detail. So today we've lined up for a dose of reality. We're joined by Brendan Coates, Economic Policy Program Director at the Grattan Institute, where they've been doing a lot of work on Australia's strategy for reopening. Brendan is no stranger to us. We've discussed housing affordability with him back in episode 89, whether young Aussies should be made to choose between super or home ownership in episode 124, and a pre-vaccination view on the new normal back in episode 153. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Brendan. We're very keen to get a greater understanding of the national plan from you. Thanks, Veronica. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be with you. I should also mention that um, in a past life, I actually did do pandemic preparedness in Treasury. So um, I was involved when we actually did some of those exercises about a decade ago where we thought about what was going to happen. And, you know, it's interesting what's happened since and what we thought about and what we didn't think about. I'd love to hear more about that. (laughs) I mean, it's an interesting point, right? Like I've tried to switch off from a lot of the what, what's next, you know, reading the news, you know, following all the, the numbers um, because it's just felt like everyone's had an opinion on it for the last since the day one and those opinions just keep getting blown out. But even with this plan, it feels like it's not really even a plan to me. It feels like it's just a, to hopefully give society confidence. But what's your thoughts on the sort of stages and how realistic do you think it is of actually happening? Well, I think the first thing to say is that, like, you know, we're in a world where we, at the start of last year, we didn't have any options. You know, COVID was a thing that had come come out of nowhere in a sense. Um, our options were basically let it run through the society, which we thought would be pretty bad, uh, to try to sort of flatten the curve, which is what a lot of countries did, where they'd sort of go in periodic lockdowns, out of lockdowns to try to deal with things to sort of preserve hospital system capacity or to do kind of what Australia, which was one of the few countries that did manage to do, which is to essentially have zero COVID for long stretches of time in the country. Now, it's not costless. It seemed to me to still be the best approach that we had on the table at the time. Um, You know, by the time people are listening to this, uh, certainly there'll be, I think it's clear that we've moved away from that strategy now in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, But now vaccines give us a way out. They give us ways of dealing with this problem that are far less costless than the pretty limited strategies that we've had on the table to date. Um, But the challenge, of course, is you've got to vaccinate enough of the population 
um, so that COVID doesn't spread incredibly rapidly and still overwhelm your health system amongst your unvaccinated population. That is actually going to be the constraint. Um, it's not a world of any more of saying, well, you know, we can't have anyone die of COVID or we can't have anyone die of anything else. Like these are trade-offs that, you know, are unavoidable. The challenge though is that, you know, people who have, if you have a large number of COVID cases, you end up in a world where you exceed your sort of ICU capacity. And that ends up being the constraint because people are in ICU for two or three weeks if, they're, if they end up um, in hospital with COVID. Um, and you've only got 2,000 ICU beds in the country. And that, so if you're using them, normally their own people are only in there for two or three days because, you know, I go and have heart surgery. I go to ICU for two days to make sure that I'm okay. I go into a normal bed. Someone else rolls through. But if you're intubating people for a couple of weeks, and we've been hearing more about this on the radio, I think, in recent weeks, particularly because it's starting to become an issue in Sydney, then that, that hospitalization and ICU capacity ends up being the constraint. And it's actually really hard to increase it. Because it's not a case of just like buying a bunch of bunch of ventilators from Japan or China. The constraint is actually people. ICU has one nurse per one person who's in the ICU. Maybe you can stretch it to two, uh, and they're really hard to train. So you know, if we expand ICU capacity, the way we'll probably do it is to get like a bunch of anaesthetists to act as ICU nurses. Like, it's not something you can expand very easily. And I think this hasn't been at the forefront of the conversation until recently, because the conversation has been like, well, look. We should just reopen. Everyone should should go back to normal. If you're not vaccinated, you're on your own. And that's kind of how mm -hmm. I thought about it a couple of months ago before we started doing this more recent work. So the report we put out, it's, it now feels like forever ago. It was a month ago. It was called Race <laughs> to 80. 80% of the total population being vaccinated, not 80% of eligible adults, which is what the government's aiming for, is I thought before that, yeah, we're in a world where, look, you're on your own. But the trouble is that the constraint ends up being, I might, I've got a COVID vaccine, so that's okay. But I have, a, I have a car accident and there's no hospital bed for me. Yeah. And that actually ends up being the problem and the constraint that governments in Australia are trying to work to. And you can see that playing out right now with, with the plan. Um, I've got a question on the, you know, the, the strategy of zero COVID, right, which worked with previous strains. It seems to me that, you know, the cat's out of the bag, certainly in New South Wales and Sydney, definitely New South Wales too, that it sort of got to a certain point. If you didn't crunch it quickly enough, um, they basically, once Delta's out, it's out. It's, it seems to be that you can't control it. Um, now, clearly I'm not an expert, I'm just an observer. But would that be fair to say? Because even looking at, at Victoria's, uh, Melbourne's shutdowns, I mean, you know, Dan's been very famous for not, not wasting any time. And even looking at New Zealand, it closed with one case, you know, and they've still got quite a lot of cases and you think, sure, you know, is it is it too late? Is, is COVID zero now a thing of the past regardless? I mean, except for WA, of course. <laughs> um, you know, is this a reality that, that we have to vaccinate anyway because it's no longer a choice? Well, so back in the day, Veronica, the strategy was always not zero COVID forever. The strategy mm -hmm. was zero COVID because it was the best of a bad lot of situations until we get the vaccine coverage high enough. And then you open the borders and you don't care. Like that was certainly when we wrote Race to 80, which is only a month ago. Mm. Uh, that's how we thought about it um, because we had essentially zero COVID in Australia. We had a small outbreak in New South Wales and they'd done pretty well dealing with other outbreaks in the past. But the short answer is yes, Victoria's in fact just today announced that they're going to actually not go for zero anymore in the last hour, um, basically because the writing's on the wall. Um, the zero COVID strategy is the most effective, the smaller the jurisdiction, right? That's something that I think people are forgetting is that the reason why Tassie can do it or WA or South Australia, particularly Tassie, is because when you've only got 300,000, 400,000 people, it only takes one person crossing the border 
for COVID mm. to come back in. And so if you've only got 5,000 people coming in over the course of a year, that's a lot safer than if you've got 40,000 coming in over the yeah. course of the year. It's kind of like, well, zero COVID was never going to work as well in, say, the United States. Yeah. Um, it worked better for us. So I think we are, unfortunately, what it does show is that by not making the investments we should have made in actually setting up quarantine properly have really come back to bite us on the ass. Like, mm -hmm. you know, building separate quarantine facilities that are completely outside of, you know, the city, but close enough to a hospital. Like the, 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 the COVID facility, the quarantine facility in Darwin has not had a single outbreak. Yeah. And that tells you a lot. That tells you if you'd built, built five of them in each of our major cities, not in them, but so for example, in Victoria, we could have put it at Avalon, for example. You walk off the plane, you walk to an open air cabin, you hop in that cabin, you're there for two weeks, you walk out and go home. Would have been, like whatever that was going to cost, which was maybe a billion dollars, would have paid itself, you know, one week of lockdown and would have paid for that. And it is this weird world where we've decided not to make choices that had enormous payoffs. And instead, that's where we find ourselves in the situation. So in Victoria, you know, I don't think we won't we won't be done until we hit the vaccine targets. Now, we'll talk about the vaccine targets in a sec, but, yep. you know, that's at least a couple of months away. Do you mm. think that, um, you know, 70%, for example, let's say we'll get there pretty easily, 75%, pretty confident, but every percentage point is going to get really tough after a certain point. And do you have any idea of when this, it's really going to slow down, the pressure is going to start to really build on, trying to get more people through you know do you think it's 75 percent? do you think it's 78 percent where, where things are going to really slow down so there's only about 10 percent of people maybe slightly less of adults that say mm, i really don't want to get a covid vaccine so 90 percent say yeah i'll get it now a lot of them quite a large proportion say 20 odd percent say oh i'll get it but just kind of not right now i suspect that number's going down because you know, in a world where, like, you've kind of got no COVID, there's no cost to you to not get the vaccine. You're not sure about it. You know, it felt mm -hmm. like it happened quickly. You know, they are, they, they, we have enough evidence now to say that they're pretty safe, particularly given the alternative of catching COVID in a world where the restrictions aren't in place. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so if you're looking, I think a lot of the, the conversation has been influenced a lot by what happened in Israel. So Israel got out of the blocks first. You know, they hit 60% vaccine coverage really quickly. You know, Benjamin Netanyahu was on the phone to Pfizer every week. They, the, basically, the military ran the whole show. And they flattened out at 60% vaccine coverage. And that seems to have influenced the public discussion about what's possible. But, you know, you look at now, Portugal's at 85% of people have had first doses. Right. Singapore's at 78. Canada's, Canada's at 73. Denmark's at 76. France is at 71. The UK is at 70. Israel's at 68. So, like, you can clearly hit 80, I think, and that's that's not allowing kids yet under the age of 12 to get the vaccine coverage. So, on our numbers, um, sort of, for what we thought was possible, one is we should be aiming for 80% vaccine coverage of the whole population. Yeah. And the reason is about it's about uncertainty. So, we don't really know how infectious Delta is because you never get a random experiment where Delta just shows up and no one, no one reacts. You've always got public health measures. You've always got all these other things. So trying to estimate right. how effective Delta is in the wild is really hard. Mm. And so you've kind of got a range. Um, and the range is kind of between, you know, effective rates of, say, say four to six. So if we're thinking about, like, non-restrictive restrictions being in place, like non-invasive ones, like maybe you wear a mask in the supermarket but nothing else. And so what we found is you had to, if you reopening, well, reopening or relaxing restrictions is kind of a one-shot game. You only get one go at it. So like New South Wales has kind of run out, unfortunately, of space. So you can't experiment anymore. 
because you're at a thousand cases a day. Mm. Melbourne is at a hundred. You can experiment a little bit and not blow it up. If you're at one case a day, you've got a lot more space. And so if you relaxed your approach and sort of said, look, we're going to open up and cases explode, you're never going to get it back down in Sydney, right? If that mm. happens. So you've got to be conservative about when you reopen things. Because it can get out of hand really quickly. Because your base rate's a thousand cases, <laughs> and I'm, I like you know I'm saying this in lockdown in Melbourne, right? Like it's not as if it's like we're saying yeah. this not in the yeah. same jurisdiction, like in the same situation. And we went through it last year in Melbourne. So but- you're saying then that that say somewhere in Brisbane, for instance, has got a better chance of actually being freer. Well, I mean, they're freer now, but that's only because they don't have any cases. But of being freer sooner if they get their vaccination rates up than Sydney does or Melbourne even for that matter, but definitely Sydney, purely because if that curve that the modelling has been done on, it starts that I keep hearing about this one case and 30 cases, you know, so um, that we're just so far along that curve that even though you pick it up at wherever we are in terms of what can happen, there's just no room for error. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, pretty much everyone I suspect has heard of like the reproduction number by now. You mm. can't have gone 18 months into the pandemic without having Oh, no, people have. People have no, gone well, along <laughs> without hearing anything that's actually vaguely um, scientific. I'm going to. I'm, I'm putting a lot of faith in in you know the um your listeners being relatively. Yes, our listeners, listening to I'm this sure podcast. Heard of this. Yes. So they're, 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 they're at least thinking with a data driven approach a bit more than the average person. Um, yeah. You know, and so. You know, what we're talking about here is a reproduction rate. It takes about five days to incubate. And so if the, ref, the reproduction rate's 1.2, that means five, well, I'll make it two. Reproduction rate of two means first you have five cases, five days later you have 10. Five yep. days later you have 20, five days later you have 40. So exponential growth, it goes really quick. But even a reproduction rate of 1.2 or 1.3, which is what you got in Sydney, has allowed cases to go from like 100 a day to 1,000 yeah. a day over the course of a few weeks. Yeah. And if that stays on that path, then you're at 6,000 a day or seven. Mm. And that's not a forecast. Um, but, you know, that's kind of what that means, right? <laughs> when you say it, that's funny, though, because what I, I've realised is is I used to think an epidemiologist was like a medical person, but they're actually a mathematician. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's right. It's all about just the power of exponential yeah. growth in... You know, you know, the, the, the old stories of the lily pond that's and like there's lilies growing over the pond and they double every day. And if you only make decision the day before when half the lilies are, cover, are covering the pond, you've got one day to sort it out. Otherwise, they cover yeah. the whole thing. So, Brendan, I mean, I think uh, say we, we get to 80, which is a, a good goal, right? And that's the goal we should be aiming for. But, you know, from what I'm seeing is the 70 percent just keeps on getting banded about. And I think society's getting coded that at 70 percent everything's going to be back to normal a little bit. From what I understand, the UK you just said is at 70% and they have sort of let it go. Um, you know, you've got full crowds at the football, for example. You've got festivals. Um, you know, societies, you know, let it go. And are they just not worrying about the ICU risk? Is that sort of, they're just sort of saying, we've just got to, you know, our freedom matters more. Who cares if, you know, our ICU beds get filled up? Is that what they're sort of saying over there? No, so what's interesting there is the, the their version of the ABS, their statistical agency, the ONS, did a survey, a serology survey, where they tested a bunch of people's blood, and they worked out that 92% of UK adults have COVID antibodies. Right. So that means you're at the time, maybe 60% were vaccinated, and the other 30% got it the hard way. Wow. Um, so, yeah. you know, what that means is if all else equal, if we reopened at something like 60%, you would find 20% of people get it the hard way. And it means that what we do is we just avoid, we just 
delay all the costs and the pain of a of a like an out of control epidemic for eighteen months and then experience them anyway. Mm. So is is not getting COVID through society um, going to come back to bite us a little bit right here? You know, like it's we're going to have to be in lockdowns for longer. You know, uh, yes, we got more freedoms at the start, but we're going to get burned on the end because we never actually got COVID out in the community. Is that sort of what's what's happening here? No, well, I think a, a bit. You know, what it meant is that we needed to really buy vaccines and like ex- yeah. have a faster vaccine rollout than other countries because mm. we're even more exposed. Yeah, and you know, we had you know, we've had that that opportunity. We had that opportunity, and it is frankly the biggest public policy failure that I've ever yeah. seen. You know, mm-hmm. is it enough to make him lose the election? Uh, that's a good question. Um, it kind of depends. We, I reckon, ask me, uh, let's talk about that. Like, I'm happy to talk about it, you know, but I think you talk about it once you've sketched out what the next couple of months are like, and I'll ask you what you guys think at that point too. Yeah. Um, I fear that I'm in my bubble because I really, and I'm, I'm, I know people think I'm a big lefty, right, but I actually am not. I'm a swinging voter and I'm swinging way away from Morrison. And it's not just because of this. It's because I actually (laughs) think Pentecostal Christians are pacifists, i.e. they're sitting around waiting for God to solve the problem. And and I think that sort of typifies the way Morrison does everything. So we've actually had comments that we shouldn't get political. Yeah, I was going to say, Veronica, (laughs) we're going to get another another, uh, one star here for going political. But It's really um, because I dislike Pentecostal Christians more than I dislike. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, but while we're here, though, Brent, I mean, one of the things that Labor were going to the election was the negative gear policy and this sort of uh, put that one in the bin. What was your thoughts on that um, and, you know, their policies going into the next election while we're at this point? Um, look, that's a, re- that's a really interesting question. I, you know, we were a, f- we were a supporter of, of, of getting away with negative gearing. Well, the capital gains tax discount mattered more. Yeah. Um, look, the, what I would observe from that is... You know, we've we've we looked at the polling and we looked at the Australian Electoral Survey and we couldn't find a lot of evidence that it really hurt him, hurt Labor at the last right. election, because the 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 electorates that were most affected swung towards Labor and it was lower income electorates that swung towards the coalition. Right. Right. That said, you know there is a difference in a narrative. You know, I'm a policy person, but I observe politics. There's a difference in a narrative that says we're going to drop negative gearing when house prices are rising, which is what happened in 2016. And a narrative that you say we're going to drop negative gearing when house prices are falling, which would happen in 2019. Oh, um, yeah. And, you know, keeping that is the challenge when you're in opposition. You you have a policy, set of policies. I think from what I can tell, it definitely helped them in 2016 mm. um, electorally. You keep those policies into 2019. And they just had so many. Like, I think, mm. you know, we're nonpartisan. We don't take a side in the in the fight per se. We do talk about the policies. So we play the policy, not the man. Mm-hmm. And in this instance... What just really struck me is just how many policies Labor had. Like, we were struggling to keep track of it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So now it's about simplifying their message for the next one and um, maybe just pick on ScoMo is probably going to be easy after. So, I mean, what are some of the the major hurdles you think about actually achieving this 80%? Like, besides a, a better vaccine rollout, what are some of the changes of perception in society? What are some of the things that we really need to work on to, to hit this number? So it really is of just honestly just about the vaccine rollout in the sense that, um, well, I think there's two things. One is it's about the vaccine rollout largely, and then it's also about a, stra- a, a, a challenge of accepting COVID in the community. Like we a thousand percent have to live with COVID. You know that is the mm-hmm. world that we're moving towards. 
the thing is that vaccine coverage allows us to do that. I'm just getting shade on me from the um, from the light outside. So, so the challenge here is, first of all, okay, can we get, do we have enough doses? The answer is clearly yes. Like we will be drowning in Pfizer in two months time. <laughs> um, you know, we, we have enough vaccines to vaccinate everyone just with Pfizer alone by the end of the year. So that's not going to be a problem. The challenge is actually kids. Now, this is where it's really tricky is we say 80%. And the reason we say that is, is when I was talking before about the reproduction rates, if the reproduction rates on the high side, then you need 80% to avoid sort of having it blow up and blowing up your hospital system. Because if it gets out of hand, this is really important is if it gets out of hand, your hospitals basically are out of action for three months, Hmm. you know, because you, and what would happen is you would, you would, do what we're doing now. You would lock down before you get there. And then it's just a longer lockdown. This is why we always said COVID zero because the alternative of letting it go ended up with a re- political response anyway. And then you're in a longer lockdown for longer. Mm. So it is about hitting that 80% number. We think that's the sort of number the government should be aiming for. Now, the national cabinet plan is not 80% of the population. And I think this is getting lost in the debate. It's 80% of eligible adults. Yes. Mm. So what is that of the whole population? So 70% of eligible adults is about 55%. Right. And 80% of eligible adults is about 65%. Mm. So more or less. So they're actually aiming for a much lower number than we are. And on our numbers, it looks like there's problems when you hit that, that open at those lower numbers. It's much riskier. Now, it may be fine. Maybe you reopen and we find out the reproduction number was lower than we thought. But as I said, it's a one-shot game. So if you get it wrong, you don't get a second bite of the cherry. Like then, you're, then you're in the UK or the, the, the London-style world, sorry, the New York world where things are running away from you. So, and What makes you ineligible? So eligible adults? Uh, so you- 16 and up at the moment is the population that they framed the vaccine targets around. We've now just opened it up to 12-year-olds, I think. Um, but the target is definitely 80% of 16 and plus because that was who was eligible at the point when they when they set the, 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 the targets. Now, the challenge is kids. So we think you could get there by the end of the year if you have a vaccine available for kids over five. Now, that's tricky because, and the reason it matters because kids don't get sick that often, but they are vectors for transmission. Mm. That is how it jumps between households. If I can put it that way. In the same oh. way as essential workers are the way it's jumping between households now in Sydney. Yeah. And so if you can't get a vaccine for kids, you are looking at more like March. But can can it be a vaccine for even five year olds too old? I mean, my daughter's two and she's a nuclear weapon. Like she if she's out going to daycare or anything like that, she brings home something and then she bang, our household blows up. So does it need to be from almost from babies like as well, like if you're really going to stop this? So on our work, we would suggest if you get 80% of everyone, including kids, it doesn't matter. In the right. same way as if you got, you would still get outbreaks, like you'll still get outbreak. You, it becomes more like something like the measles, right? Like mm. it's something that happens, you isolate for a few days if you get it, but the whole school doesn't shut down. Um, mm. Now, that said, no, but when I say, you know, March next year, everyone goes, oh, Jesus, are we going to be in this world until March? And the answer is not quite, right? But it depends on where you are. Because as the vaccine coverage um, increases, the reproduction rate falls. So maybe what's going to happen now is states are going to, and this is what Victoria signalled, as the vaccine coverage goes up, and Gladys has done this in New South Wales as well, you will gradually relax restrictions with an aim of keeping the reproduction rate at one or below. Right. Um, now, Gladys thought uh, we would be able to do more things. Instead, it's what you can go for a picnic outside with five people. 
I know it's not a lot. Um, you I'd know. rather go to my hairdresser. <laughs> I'd rather my kids go to childcare, you know. And the challenge is that each one of those things, it's almost like a budget. You've got a budget for the reproduction rate in the community and you've got to keep it sort of at that level. And New South Wales really has to keep it at one. And, like, they're struggling to keep it at one now when mm. everything's shut, which is, which is problematic. Like, I think they're, you know... It's a really tough situation. There's not really a way out because if they relax restrictions much and it goes from 1.1 to 1.5 reproduction, mm. you go from a thousand cases to like ten thousand pretty quick. And yeah. that's not good. I feel like the ultimate host here because I can ask silly questions, uh, which is what a good host can do. Is these the questions that listeners are thinking uh, regarding when it's uh, not? But what about these top up and boosters? Because you know, are we going to get to this seventy or eighty percent, and then that starts to you know, lose its um, impact, and then we're going to have to start hitting boosters, you know, every six months because, I mean, I've only read a tiny little bit, and that's what I'm hearing is that, you know, these things start to run out of steam pretty quick. Yeah, so what's interesting is, every, you know, we've demonised a bit AstraZeneca in Australia, which I think has been really unfortunate and one of the bigger policy mistakes that we've made Yeah. Um, is AstraZeneca is actually holds its potency for longer. So, by month four, the expectation is AstraZeneca will be more effective than Pfizer. Wow. Because That's it's just about the way the, vi- the, 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 virus, the vaccines are made. Like, I don't yep. know. I only read what I read. I don't, I'm not an expert in any of that mm. stuff. Economists are very good at speaking outside our lane generally, but there are limits <laughs> even to what I'm willing to go. Um, so, yeah, the short answer, Chris, is, yeah, you're going to look at boosters. Um, Israel's already rolling them out. The US are too. I suspect yeah. we've bought enough. Mm. You know, this time we've... Right. Yeah, we have bought enough to do to do that for next year. It is challenging ethically, you know, globally, because there's a whole bunch of countries where, you know, only 40, 35% of the world is right. vaccinated. Mm. Um, a bunch of, you know, I used to live in Indonesia, like the vaccine coverage there is really low. You know, it's That's been pretty bad. Um, also, there's been an more. issue. There's yeah. an issue that there have been is it Sinovac, the Chinese vaccination, that that's a, doesn't appear, to, well, the vaccine, I should say, doesn't appear to be as effective if, as the others. So that appears that... to be the case um, mm. from what we can tell. If you, you know, the expectation was a year ago, we would, if we got a vaccine as effective as Sinovax, we would have been ecstatic, right? As it turns out, we've got runs that are really good. Like AstraZeneca mm. is like really effective at what it does. Um, and if that was the only vaccine we had, we would be using it. And instead, we've mm. kind of ended up in this kind of mad world where we, people are not using Pfizer. AZ, they're waiting for Pfizer. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think that that is, you know, something that's worth thinking about. Public health hasn't been perfect during this period. We've made a lot of mistakes. Your government's going to make heaps of mistakes when it's had, having to intervene in society as much as it has. Um, but that that is a big one for me. Like the fact that the that Atagi and the, which is basically the expert group, recommended against AZ for under 60s. Yeah, um, I think was a huge mistake. So, so I was one of those under 60s that got AstraZeneca. Um, and I was actually booked for my second dose on this Friday. And my mother-in-law was like, hang on a sec, how did you get your first dose only four weeks ago and you're getting your second dose, like literally after four weeks? And I could book it on the app. Um, and, and I just I did some reading last night and I'm meant to be waiting eight weeks. And so I would have got through the cracks and got it booked with a four-week gap. And so if I can do it within four weeks, is this going to be our next stuff up where – the people getting their AstraZeneca is going to be too soon than what, because we're just trying to rush everyone through. Um, so I moved mine to eight weeks, which, you know, but I could have done it in four weeks. So I just don't get what's going on. Do you know? 
Yeah, so so the first thing I'd say is that when we do these trials, right, like you basically, the, the drug company has to decide what roughly what length of time they think they're going to need to run this large-scale trial that they only get one shot at, right, and then they come back later. And so, you know, they 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 went with a 12-week dosage. I think they actually, with AstraZeneca, other places went with a shorter dosage and we actually worked out that longer was better. Mm. Um I'm pretty sure the advice in New South Wales, and look, I'm not a medical professional. I'm pretty sure the advice in New South Wales has been to bring forward your second dose because it might be like, you know, you might be 88% effective at four weeks. Maybe it's 93 at at eight weeks. Maybe it's 95 at 12 weeks. And at the moment, they just want everyone vaccinated because it's spreading through the community. Mm. Um, So, you know, people have got to make their own choices. But, you know, I think that's why you can do it at four weeks. I think it is actually... I think there's less science about the dosage numbers. Like, there's actually some interesting research that says you could have done half doses of Pfizer and it's almost as effective, in which case we could have vaccinated twice as many people by now. But we've been very... In a world where we've asked people to be so flexible, um, our institutional arrangements that govern how we approach sort of health regulation in particular have not been flexible at all. They've, you know, they've taken months to to approve vaccines in australia that are already being used with 100 million doses abroad it's kind of like if you already know it's being used abroad so i guess people who think it's a conspiracy of the pharmaceutical companies in cohorts with the government you know need to hear that but you know because your the data you mentioned earlier sort of in it suggests to me that there's about 10 percent of anti-vaxxers out there committed anti-vaxxers that will not have the vaccine regardless would that is that fair to say from what you're yeah that's what they say they don't want to take it now how anti-vax they are like whether they're going to go post on their local facebook group or they're just not going to get around to getting an appointment yeah. uh, is unclear right do they have any power you know, I mean, in the sense that are they holding any of us to ransom? I mean, if there's 10%, you know, does it matter once we get to 90%? I know we've been talking about 70%, 80% and 55%, 65%. You know, if 10% of the population just dig their heels in and say, no, no way, will will it really become a, a, a disease of the unvaccinated in that, you know, the way I think Joe Biden has called it, Um but are they in any way influencing what's happening at the moment? Well, they are to the extent that we're not as far along the curve as what we would be if they were, were open to getting the vaccine. Mm. Um, you know, I, I can I can understand at sort of like a, a base intuitive level that if you're not following this really closely and it's like, Jesus, we didn't think we'd have vaccines and now we do. Mm. Like, is there something weird going on? Maybe your trusting government is less like, you know, the role I have, I, I talk to politicians all the time, you know, we're trying to advise them on policy. And so, mm. you know... I have a like. I have my eyes open about the bad things about how politics works, but I have enough faith in other institutions. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Where we're going to end up, though, Veronica, is a world where this is why things like vaccine passports, you know, domestic restrictions, that freedom's only being given to the vaccinated, not to the undervaccinated. That's kind of why we're heading in that direction. Because Mm. in a normal world, you would say, look, your body, your choice. Yeah. In this world, we're saying, well, although we do do things like you can't get childcare benefits if you send your kids to childcare unless they're, Mm -hmm. they're vaccinated. 
in this world, we are literally locking down all of society and and forcing people to stay in their homes. So you're not going to mandate that the vaccine, you have to have the vaccine. Um, I think that's probably a stretch too far. Um, but what you will do is say, well, you can't go to a cafe, you can't go to a restaurant, you can't go to the footy, you can't go to a bar unless you... Well, they try vaccine. policing that if you're a small cafe or restaurant. You know, a pub maybe has got a security guard, certainly the football oval, you know, the footy, the grounds. Um, it's going to be interesting to to manage that. But but I'm curious to know also, what what do you say to people who think that by prioritising health of the economy, which is effectively what we have done, right, we've actually caused more of a mental health problem? So I think there's a real failing at times of counterfactual thinking here. It's <laughs> kind of like we're in lockdown and the, we're attributing all the costs of, of, of lockdown to lockdown to the strategy. And it's like, no, 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 COVID is this really crappy thing that's happened to us all. And so what would life look like if we hadn't have locked down? Mm-hmm. Like, I think the economic, co- well, we know from, from certainly looking at some of the early studies of, say, Sweden versus other places, that the countries that follow the Australian approach have actually had the best of both worlds. We've had fewer deaths. We've actually had less of an economic disruption. Now, that's because it's COVID zero and you can kind of, if you're in Perth right now, like, what's COVID? Like, you can't yeah. go to Bali, but the, apart from that, your life is pretty much normal. <laughs> and I mean that seriously, not in a disparaging <laughs> way. Like, it is an incredible yeah. achievement. Well, it was like that in Sydney until, you know, June. Yeah, like Victorians kind of got a bit of a, the rough end of the stick in the Australian context where we haven't quite had it quite to the same degree. But if you're in most of Australia, like life is better here than it has been anywhere else um, as far as dealing with COVID goes. And so, you know, un- unmitigated spread of COVID is probably worse for the economy. That's the Treasury's view when they did they did modelling along with Doherty Institute for the National Cabinet discussions. Mm. So we've probably done better. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't costs, but like a lot of those costs that are existing under lockdowns, a lot of those same costs that are existing in a world of unmitigated spread because in a world where there's no vaccine, like you're not going out anywhere anyway because, you know, it's spreading like wildfire. If you do get sick, yeah. you can't go to hospital. If you have a yeah. car accident, you can't go to hospital. Like, you know, yeah. life's pretty hard. So, you know, I think there's a debate that we should we should debate these questions. The mental health stuff is, I think, a real thing, and we should worry a lot about that. And the duration of it matters. It's why vac- investing in vaccines and everything else was so important and such a huge mm. failure. Because at this point, we could probably not be in lockdown if it wasn't for vaccines. Mm. I don't think Sydney would be anywhere near the position it's in now if, it was, if we'd got the vaccine rollout up and running, even at the pace of, like, the UK or Canada or France or our normal comparator countries that are wealthy and normally well-governed or relatively well-governed. Yeah. So, so Brennan, on an economy point of view, um, what are some of the, the things that we're going to look back on 2020, 2021, 2022 and say, like, that's when we lost the Holden, you know, that's when we lost part of our economy to COVID, you know, is there going to be some sectors or some industries or certain parts of small business that you think just won't ever come back from these and, and things have moved on? You know, like working from home, it's been a tight, you know, massive shift and I don't think we're going to go back to five days in the office. I might be wrong. But is there going to be other things where you think the economy is really pivoted um, and think people are going to get really hurt? Yeah, so I, I, last year, if you well, I was on the podcast, I think, talking about some of our employment projections early on, which turned out to be completely wrong, and I'm really grateful <laughs> that they did. Um, and I'm happy to acknowledge that because any good, decent pundit should at least acknowledge when they did get it wrong. 
Yeah. And we did. <laughs> you um, will get a gold star in our full forecast report right. for next so year. Ne- never trust me it. again. Like I've learned that just not to make forecasts is the best way to do it. Um, <laughs> no, and we're not. We're not. We normally aren't in the forecasting game as much as say some of your other um, your guests on the podcast. Um, <laughs> but I think the the big problem right now is last year. Look, last year we 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 paid people to stay at home, and it wasn't perfect, yeah. but it worked pretty well. Yeah. You know, you, you there was some, you know, Jerry Harvard's paid back his $6 million from Harvey Norman to on JobKeeper in the last couple of days. What was he paid? Is that all of what he was paid? No, I think it was only what was paid to his stores. And then there's ah. obviously the franchises that he doesn't own. Um, Got it. But, you know, there's there was always going to be a bunch of waste. And I don't think we should look back at that as, like, maybe we could have done a better job, but mm. it's pretty hard to. Um, like, I helped design the 08 stimulus. And, like, literally we did it in a weekend, right? Like... That's just how things work. I used well, to. Speed is important, isn't it? At that point, it's a crisis. You need help then, right? That's right. And you know, I remember at the time, like it used to be a great story to say I'd spent ten billion dollars in a weekend, and now I know the guys that actually designed JobKeeper, and they're just like, that's not much of a story anymore. <laughs> like, we lost <laughs> seventy million billion dollars down the back of a couch. Like, I mean, while you're there, Brennan, what is the <laughs> the debt impact though? Like, let's say we all like most sectors come back right, and maybe some businesses don't survive. And I really do feel. It's a really story that's getting lost at the moment is the small business impact that is, you know, growing for a lot of society. But what is the government sort of credit card bill sort of risen that we're going to really have to pay back? And how long is that going to take us? You know, because that, that's really one of the costs that we can't run away from, right? Yeah. So, like, we've obviously accumulated a bunch of debt. What's interesting is the, the, the interest costs on that debt is less now than what it was before COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, it kind of depends on what you think is going to happen to interest rates. And I think most economists will tell you now that secular stagnation is a real thing. Larry Summers, basically, you know, there's global inequality and aging population means that interest rates, there's too much savings and not enough investment as demand for those savings, which means interest rates have fallen. I don't think that world's going away anytime soon. So, look, there's yeah. a forecast for your, for your listeners. Um And so, you know, in that world, then, like, the debt is kind of sustainable. Like... We are in a world where, you know, there's an opportunity cost. You're giving up spending that money on something else, but I think we spent it on the right thing, i.e. we spent it to keep the economy whole while we locked down and went through this mess. Um, But I think the long-term costs of that are actually not as big as people think. Yeah. Um, There is a medium-term fiscal challenge in Australia in the context that the population's ageing. Now, you could deal with that by raising taxes. You could deal with that by cutting spending. Those are both politically difficult. So it's not an unsolvable problem, but... There, it's the actual underlying economic costs of it are not that high and certainly nowhere near as high as the next best option, which would have been to not pay people, which would have been far worse. Um, the bigger problem, Chris, at the moment is we're really not paying people anywhere near as much as we were last year. And I, mm. you know, I did a podcast um, a couple of weeks ago with small businesses and it was, you know, it is, you know, they've basically been thrown under the bus. Like, yeah. And... Uh, they're having to, to, to incur the costs themselves on their own balance sheets that last year we shared across the community. And yeah. I don't understand why we're not we're making different choices. Now, partly it's politics. You know, the government clearly doesn't want JobKeeper to return because it would remind yeah. everyone of the overspending um, on some things. But yeah. we, in a world where we're requiring for everyone to stay at home for months at a time, morally, you yeah. can't expect small businesses and, 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 and workers to bear that cost mm. on their own balance sheets. That's something we should be sharing across the community more. And I don't really understand the logic where we're being, you know, we're being spendthrift on that right now. The economic costs of not doing it will be much higher. 
So the parts you asked before about what are the parts of the economy that might, you know, struggle. I think any if you're working in commercial office space, you're in your things are not looking great because, mm. you know, I don't expect to go back to work five days a week uh, in the office. In fact, you know, I'm probably going to buy a bigger house instead so I can work from home. Um, so you've kind of you've got sectors like that that are going to struggle. Um, you know, we're not really going to get back into a world where international travel is going to be going gangbusters again until sometime next year. Um, so that's going to hurt, I suspect, as well, those businesses that rely on international tourism. So anyone in North Queensland, um, you know, travel agents, flight businesses and so on. Like you're taking this hit to your balance sheet that's maybe the economy. Like I think what we've learned in the last year is the economy is pretty resilient. Like it bounced back much quicker than we all thought or the, mm -hmm. I think most people thought. And the reason for that is because we paid people to sort of preserve it, to snap mm -hmm. freeze it. And then when we thought it out, things were kind of okay. Um, so I think the long-term economic costs are are probably going to be less than you think. The structural change will occur, but it's kind of still hard to predict what that looks like apart from I wouldn't go and investing in commercial office space yeah. anytime soon. You said the things we can get away from that ageing population is spend more or, you know, uh, take more taxes. But what about migration, right? What about us just going on the the next uh, baby boom, but instead of a baby boom, it's like a import people boom do you think that that's going to be, you know, the next five, ten years is we're just going to go nuts on migration? Well, the government's pitched for they're going to increase the permanent migrant intake from 160 a year back up to 190 um, in a couple of years' time. That's in the intergenerational report, the most recent one. The short answer is, like, you could imagine that, that, ha that happening. Like, the challenge is going to be, and so part of my work program is migration. We just released a report on permanent migration a couple of months ago. Um and, you know, there is a big fiscal benefit from migration, not in the sense that in the sense that migrants, particularly they tend to be wealthier, they tend to pay more tax than they draw in services and there's a long-term fiscal dividend and that dividend can actually be pretty big for bringing people that are quite skilled, which is what most of our program is. Um, so I suspect that's another way. You can also grow the pie by growing the economy. Like that's obviously, they're kind of the four strategies you've got. So migration is a way of growing the size of the economy. I would expect... If you'd asked me six months ago, I would have said Australia's going to emerge from this a much more attractive destination for migration than anywhere else. Mm. I'm not so sure now because our global... Uh, the way we've treated migrants in Australia hasn't been fantastic. You know, we've excluded yeah. them from these programs like JobKeeper when other countries didn't. <laughs> um, you know, the borders are still shut and look like they're going to be shut in Australia longer than anywhere else, basically. And so, it's look, I find it really hard to predict, but, you know... We're, we're not going to be out of this for a while yet. And I do want to touch briefly on the sort of the, the national plan. Um, that Yeah, but before we get to that, though, because sort of going back to, um, you know, the people that are bearing the brunt of this new wave of lockdowns, um, mostly, you know, small business and the employees that are losing their jobs or on stand down and not being supported in the same way that they were before, right, and then there's uprising, there's social uprising. Um, did I read somewhere there was like 60 protests or something across the country on the weekend or something? I mean, it, it's, they might be small, but people are really starting, there's a bit of an underswell. Um, and then, of course, if you're talking about increasing migrate, migrant intake because there's this perception they're taking our jobs, you know. So, so does that all feed into there's, you know, the 
that gap, I guess, between the haves and the haves nots, and we, we we can put this back in properly at the, for them just for a minute because the reality is that that obviously property prices rising, the opportunity to get into the market is is getting further and further away for um for people who don't have a property. Is is that something that the government do you think is paying attention to that the potential for that sort of social unrest as a result of inequality? Well, I think the social unrest at the moment and people are people are frustrated with being locked down. You know, it's pretty reasonable. I understand why people are feeling mm. that way, particularly if your livelihood, sorry, is not being protected in the same way as what it was last year. Yeah. Um, so if your livelihood was being protected and maybe even you're getting a little bit more than you would have because JobKeeper was a bit more generous yeah. than what you were getting mm. before, I thought that was fine because you're basically paying people to stay at home. You're sort of accepting yeah. this is a cost yeah. we're making you incur. Like, look, I can do my job from home. Like, I'm pretty lucky about it as long mm. as childcare's open you know which isn't always the case then um but i'm like i'm pretty well off compared to most people in how i'm having to deal with this situation but if you if you're running a business and like the work of 10 years is going down the drain i can kind of understand why you would get really frustrated in that way Mm. like but what the policy failure there isn't end lockdowns because i think that would be worse that unfortunately the policy failure is we're not paying people to do you know what what we're really asking them to do we're not coming to the party and to the table morally the same way we were last year like so there's less of a sense we're all in this together because in some respects we're not but not only that but there's also a bit of a misinformation i think around around whether there's going to be continued lockdowns or not you know it's 70 percent, 80 percent vaccinated in plan phase b and phase c it's like that's sort of in the fine print and you know i think if people are feeling pretty pissed off now then they line up get vaccinated thinking that's our passport out of here and all of a sudden we're able to get back on with life and then finding oh hang on a minute still can't you know it's not going to be very popular is it <laughs> yeah i think that's a real mistake that governments are making and i can understand how the politics can lead to the outcome that we've got which is that you know the vaccine rollout has been ineffective and um uh and we're, we're sort of aiming to say reassure people there'll be some freedoms coming the problem is as we sort of talked about all along the vaccine car- targets for it, people a lot of people that i talk to tend to think that when we hit 80 percent, everything goes back to normal but that's not what the national mm. plan says. Yeah, this is the juicy bit, right? Yeah, so the national plan does not say when we hit 80%, um, you know, things are, are fine. The national plan assumes that, and based on the work that Doherty's done in particular, you're assuming that you've got some level of baseline community restrictions. Like there are floor density limits um, going on in a permanent level. There are still restrictions on... Um, inbound and outbound travel. Lockdowns are not off the table. And in our work, it would seem to suggest that lockdowns are fairly likely. Or at least, you know, the threshold question is, can you, at 70% vaccine coverage or 80% vaccine coverage of the eligible population, so that's 55, 65% of the whole population, can you have schools open and childcare open and keep the reproduction rate below one? Like, we don't kind mm. of know that yet, right? Mm. Um, and so phase, the what Doherty has done is only model phase B. So there are four stat phases. Phase A is where we are. Continue to strongly suppress the virus. Well, look, we're not doing that as well as we were when the plan was made a month ago. Phase B is minimise serious illness and death from COVID with low-level restrictions and expecting that, you know, lockdowns are less likely but possible. Phase C, when we hit 80% eligible population, uh, is live with the virus, minimise serious injuries, in, in uh, illness and death. We still keep baseline restrictions in place. We still have lockdowns. Uh, we still have restrictions on a bunch of things, 
And then phase D is when everything reopens. Now, Grattan just modelled phase D and we think you need 80% of the whole population. And even 80% is not prob- possibly not enough. At that point, if you're starting at zero cases, then the ref starts above one, but your vaccine coverage rises, keeps going yeah. up, so that you outrun the virus in a sense. So when the government is saying 70% you'll get some freedoms, 80% you get some freedoms, particularly when COVID's in the community, which makes the task harder, you're probably looking at less restrictions. You're looking at the kind of rules that Victoria and New South Wales are rolling out now, which is that you gradually open up, test mm. which things kick it above one. But like schools are a big source of transmission. Childcare is a source of transmission. So it doesn't mean things go back to normal. And I think people are expecting that it's going to be and they're mm. going to be really pissed off when it's not. And the politics come down to who do you blame? Do you blame Scott Morrison for the vaccine rollout? Or do you blame the states that are the ones that are fronting press conferences saying what you can and can't mm. do every day? And that's, I think, you know, I don't think we quite know what the politics is going to look like. So do you think there's one? going to be a massive <laughs> budget spend next year? Because when will the election be? Will the election will probably be, you can do it before or after, can't you? Or what, what, it's got to be by May, I think, was the last mm. time that they can go to an election, which means the election itself could be... They've got, I think, I'm not sure if the election has been May or it could be call it in May for June. Yeah. So the budget's going to be before that, right? Well, budget's normally in May, but we we sometimes move it forward, sometimes we push it back. You can you can do whatever you want. It's just a convention. <laughs> so do you think that though, you know, just sort of forecasting next year, do you think that we're probably still going to be living with the virus, probably still going to be living with lockdowns next year? We may get to that 80-90% range by March sort of time. What are you thinking? Um, so we're based on current trends, we'll hit 80% of the 16 plus population, you know, in mid November, New South Wales will get there earlier. Now that's partly because you've got COVID and therefore you're going to get any vaccine. It's partly because more Pfizer doses are being shipped to New South Wales than elsewhere. Um, that means you could hit 80% by the end of the year. I think if things keep going the way they are, I think we should be able to hit 80 by the end of the year. I suspect you'll probably see... more mandates of you can't go to the restaurant or the footy unless you're vaccinated and that will actually be the thing that pushes the vaccine rates up and that's justified (laughs) then you're okay you're going into 2022 um do you reckon you can go travel regionally though can you can uh, can i go to the south coast like do you think at 80 percent, or do you reckon these it'll still be a city lga lockdowns you mean 80 percent of the government's targets Yeah. yeah i think it uh, Chris, it kind of depends where the numbers are at because if the mm. numbers are at 10,000 or 5,000 cases a day, and, like, again, these aren't forecasts, this is just you know, speculation, if the numbers were high at that point, then it's really hard because mm. if you allow people to move around more, then the reproduction rate rises and you might be worried about your hospitals. Mm. If, the, if the numbers are more like where they are now, then possibly, yes, you don't worry so much anymore. We yeah. haven't done that work. Um, I suspect Doherty is going to have to do that work for the government in the next little bit. Yeah. Um, so I suppose my only thing I can say is I, it's not going to look like a full reopening when we hit those 80% numbers. Yeah. yeah. It's going to look like something a bit more relaxed, uh, more much more strict than that. And I would prioritise schools and childcare over everything else because you can pay people to not run their restaurant. You can't pay a kid for the lost learning of not being in schools. And that's, you know, a big problem. And also more people can work from home if their kids are at school, let's face it. So I, it's, it is interesting because obviously, yeah, there's this expectation that I think is allowed by the government um, to f- 
be fostered that, yes, on 70 and 80%, we're going to be almost back to normal, certainly at 80%. I think a lot of people I talk to, they seem to feel that that is, they say it, so... And and I do when you I listen quite carefully to what is being said by the politicians and and there's it's it's a rural economy of of information and detail and it's interesting what you say about Doherty has hasn't even modelled out phase D, so therefore there's no numbers there to to work to no targets you know that's that's um, even a bit scary in itself to think that that's the ultimate you know living with COVID that's sort of what it looks like but we don't know actually what's required to get there is that partly because we we're still learning as we go we're observing what's happening overseas and we're sort of testing what's happening here so it's like to model it now is almost a bit premature yeah well look having gone through an exercise where we modelled a month ago assuming zero cases sort of run more or less through the end of the year and then we reopened like things are looking different. And that's what Doherty said. Like, they've said it's too uncertain to do phase D yet. And also, they, mm. I think they were only asked by the government to do phase B. So, they're only being commissioned by the government to do certain things. Mm. Um, on the sort of, like, the messages from politicians, I think this is kind of this dichotomy between 80% of the eligible population and what that entails and 80% of the total population and what that entails for your freedoms is what's driving the rhetoric from Queensland and WA. Mm. So, you know, they're saying they're not going to relax restrictions at 80%. And if they're at COVID zero at that point, that's the right call, you know. Mm, yeah. You you leave it in place until not forever, you know, who knows what WA is going to do. It is, it is, um, it does have its own politics um, and its own identity. But, um, you know, you're in a world where I, you, you probably don't let it in until you get to 80% of the whole population. Now, maybe yeah. in two months time, they've got COVID from a truck driver from over east anyway, and it doesn't matter. And we're all gradually everyone falls like dominoes and ends up yeah. in like Victoria and New South Wales. Um, but that's I think it's unhelpful that they're not being explicit that we're they're not having the conversation yet that they're going to have to let it in eventually because mm. we have to do that. Like we can't stay locked down forever. No one, I don't know anyone that genuinely says we should just stay locked down and never engage with the world, even though that's the meme that comes from criticism <laughs> of zero COVID. Um, yeah. It's certainly not what we think. Um, we want to live with COVID, but there's different ways of living with COVID and not overwhelming your hospital system seems like a pretty good way to me. So what it's, should it's, the government well, be doing now? I mean, you go, Veronica, if you want. Yeah, no, I was just, because, I mean, it's interesting you drew that distinction between sort of it's the measurement is the ICU beds, not the deaths. You know, because, of course, deaths come after the lack of ICU beds anyway, right? So mm. it's just like you don't even want to contemplate what could happen if, if we don't have the capacity to help those chronically ill patients. But also the knock-on effect of all the people that die of other things that would otherwise have been treated in an ICU bed yeah. that's no longer available. And, I, and it's funny because one of those arguments you hear from people who were sort of a bit anti-vax and they're going, oh, you know, the, all these people dying of COVID but, or dying of pneumonia and it's marked down that they died of COVID because if they had COVID, that's marked as a cause of death. And I'm like, well, what about all the people that died of a car accident but because they couldn't get an ICU bed and they would have got one had it not been for a COVID patient being in that bed? Did they, does their death get marked? down to being due to COVID also. Um, you know, you sort of can't have it both ways, right? Mm. Well, there's a sense to which that sort of anti-lockdown crowd has 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 framed and owned, like, look, there are costs, health, there are health displacement costs from being locked down and saying people aren't going and getting tested for mm. cancer. But those same people wouldn't go and get tested for cancer if the place they were most likely to get COVID was the place they were getting tested yeah, for, that's right. yeah, for cancer. Like, like, it's a two-way street. <laughs> Yeah, yeah exactly. No, no That's easy it. Way out. So, yeah. I mean, besides helping small businesses 
like because what I'm thinking about is probably the economy side of it, and the health side. Who knows, right? What's going to happen and vaccines and rollouts and stuff like that. But how's that sort of going to play into interest rates? How's that going to play into the economy? What's that going to impact our migration and and etc. What should the government, you know, because Scott Morrison's got the election next year. What should he be really doing here from a policy point of view? Because he's sort of just focusing on this vaccine rollout, but really, should he just be going and spending? I know you're in the policy space. Should he be going spending a lot more cash doing another type of round of JobKeeper? Should he be doing another funding line to the banks? You know, what should be happening that's not happening at a government level from a you know spending point of view? I think it's fair to say, like, what the unemployment got down to, what, 4.8 or lower? Yeah. Um, you know, it got low before COVID, yeah, before the latest lockdowns. So, like, the underlying economy is, like, running around with a bunch of liquidity and looking pretty good. Um, you know, in a, so for what should the government do? Well, look, they could do more now, um, and that would make the rollout on the other side, the recovery on the other side faster, that, you know... We don't know where the the rate of unemployment is that starts to see inflation rise. My guess is it looks like it's probably got a three in front of it rather than a four. Like, mm. um, you know, just from what we've seen, like the US got down to low threes and unemployment and inflation wasn't rising much there either. Yeah, right. Um, so I think we're in a world where you've got more spare capacity in the economy than we realise. So in a sense, there's a payoff to doing more stimulus and more support. You should certainly pay people to stay at home. And if you did that, that's probably enough extra stimulus because that in itself, if you pay people properly, you are probably talking another 10, 20, 30 billion dollars into the economy over the last six months of the year. Like that would be a lot of money. Yeah. You know, you can get 40% of your costs covered. Um, I think it's under JobSaver um, through for small businesses. It should be 70 or 80. Like the program should be twice the size. Mm-hmm. So that itself probably does a lot of the work for you. Like the... You know, the RBA is saying they're not going to do more or has sort of had had been saying they're going to keep tapering off the the sort of quantitative easing they've been doing. Um, you know, I don't understand why you wouldn't why you wouldn't keep going in a world when your inflation is still well below your target. Like they have probably not done as much as they should have over time. And it's hard to explain why they're not doing more when they've got the scope, given that there's you're not at your, you haven't hit your target and you haven't hit your inflation target for, say, mm. six years. Um, beyond that, though. You know, we obviously want to spend as much as we can. Whatever it takes to get the vaccine coverage up, spend it. But I think mm-hmm. sticks are probably going to be more effective than carrots here. So we recommended like a lottery, $10 million a week for 10 weeks mm-hmm. or for eight weeks from start of November through the end of the year. So starting on Melbourne Cup Day because we are Victorians. Um, but, you know, you should do all those things. Beyond that, you probably got to see what the economy looks like. But, yeah. you know, we're still a long way from full employment. We're a long way from inflation rising. That's kind of suggesting you've got spare capacity you could use. Would stimulus work right now? Just straight up normal stimulus? Probably not as effectively because people can't go and spend the money. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's more about solving, pe- keeping people safe, they're keeping their balance sheets, sheets secure. Mm. Going into next year, I think what'll be interesting is I don't expect, I wouldn't expect rates to rise much, if at all, for a while. The RBA has become much clearer that they will not, increase rates until inflation is sustainably back within two to three percent and wages are growing and i feel like we're a while before that happens yeah well i imagine these most recent lockdowns would have put a bit put a bit of a kick in the teeth of that idea anyway right i think so um and is it just me i mean they're pretty much waiting hoping that the house prices will just sort of you know peter off really right they, they they're hoping that the growth will slow down and affordability constraints will kick in and then that will take the whole pressure off from rising rates just to slow down asset price growth but and what happens if prices just keep on rising you know and um, affordability just keeps on getting stretched you know do you think that 
at some point they're going to have to raise rates just to slow down, you know, basically investors start coming back into the market. You know, these things could definitely start to happen if they don't increase rates and they, in 2023 or 2024, they're still at zero. I think we've learned for the last five years that that strategy of what they call leaning against the wind, which is where you have rates higher than they probably should be to reduce um, to reduce the amount that people borrow and worry about house prices and credit bubbles, is a bad idea. You know, it, the costs of that strategy are very high because you've got a lot more unemployment than you should have. Wages grow more slowly than they otherwise would have. Um, and ironically enough, balance sheets are often in a worse state because the economy's not been growing as fast as it should have. Mm. So, you know, where we've got to is we eventually introduced macroprudential rules. So the basic principle of, you know, monetary policy is you, if you've got one tool, if you've got one objective, you need one instrument. If you've got two objectives, you need two instruments. Mm. And so, you know, you've got a second instrument, which is you can control how much people can borrow, particularly for riskier lending. Um, that would be where I'd expect that they would go if they mm. are worried about risks. Now, at the moment, they're not that worried because it's mainly first, it's mainly home buyers, particularly particularly upgraders, you know, mm. I'm the case in point, you know, I'm looking at a house that's more expensive than I was last year because my existing home is now worth more and I've got more equity to play with. They call it like yeah. a financial accelerator. Um, so if they're going to do anything, it would be on macro potential. Um, it, they seem very relaxed about that at the moment. And it's because who's borrowing more money at the moment are the probably more secure credits. So that they're yeah. not worried about the banks. Yeah. So I don't expect rates to rise. I wouldn't expect that to happen for a while. Um, yeah. Macro proves that, and, and the Reserve Bank Governor has said that they will not do that again. You know, he mm. has said that in his speeches. Um, yeah. Where I think things are going to go is we're going to go into next year's election with house prices having risen by 20% plus in Sydney, Brisbane, um, Adelaide. Melbourne's a bit behind um, yeah. based on the core yeah. logic numbers. But, and so I suspect Labor's not going to want to do something like negative gearing. So what you're probably going to see is a competition about who can do something that sounds good for first-home buyers. So yeah. can you extend the deposit guarantee scheme? Do you do a shared equity scheme where the government buys part of your house for you? Um, yeah. Which that the latter is not... There, there, is, there is a policy case you can make for why that's not a terrible idea for people who don't have access to the bank of mum and dad. Mm. Um, and things like of that nature. I think you're going to mm. have an election that's about where can you... About retail politics about what you can offer that's going to sound good to the electorate and not things that are probably going to make an enormous difference because all the things that would make a big difference in our work, they're really hard. It's boosting, mm. relaxing planning rules and attractive places to live so you get more townhouses and apartments built in the, the most expensive areas of Sydney and Melbourne. Like, that's hard. Yeah. Negative gearing and CGT reform for investors, that's pretty hard, yeah. including the home and the assets test for the age pension. That's really hard. Yeah. Like these are not, they're not easy solutions to actually, if yeah. you want to bring prices down and improve affordability and yeah. so you're left in the world that we're at, which is essentially, you know, things that sound good may, some <laughs> things will make more difference than others. Like the shared equity scheme, I think probably is, is not a bad idea. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's tricky. Like these are the, these are the policies I'd expect governments to look at and politicians to look at going into the next election. Yeah. Brendan, we've got to ask you, have you got a property Dumbo that you want to throw in that you've heard recently? I know you've been on here four times, I think. So Yeah, um, no. I, I, look, I'm just amazed at the amount of people that will buy it because in Melbourne you can't do inspections, right? Is the amount of people that will buy a house without ever seeing it. Mm. You know, I find the idea that you're going to spend, you know, six times your annual income buying a house mm. and never see the property, is, you know, it's just quite confronting. C can, you, can you drive past it, though? 
if you could walk past as part of your hourly exercise. Um, mm. As long as it's within, what, 5Ks of where you 5Ks, live? 5Ks, yeah, that's right. 5Ks. <laughs> Yeah. Luckily, is the place there, I'm looking the at is 5K is exactly from my current house. Yeah. I think it's because there's permits in New South Wales, isn't there, Veronica? Like, if you wanted to go and look at a property, you can get a permit if it's outside your is it LGA. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I don't know about the permits. I do know that as a real estate agent, I'm considered essential worker, which is fabulous. And so I can go outside my LGA. However, if I was in one of those stricter lockdown LGAs, I couldn't go outside my LG, uh, outside mm. the LGA. So it does depend on who you, where you are. Um, but I can go into one of those LGAs and then out again. I just can't exit it if I live in that LGA. Right. Yeah. And I've got – but then, you know, there, there must be a loophole because you can leave Sydney to go and look for property up in Byron Bay, you know. Yes. Um, famously done, um, yeah. infamously done, I should say, but um, but that's been tightened. Oh, I love the fact it's been tightened. You're not yeah. allowed to leave Sydney. I find, it's amazing. Can't leave Sydney. Oh, but you can go up there looking for an investment property. Mm. So that's been tightened so you can only go up there if you're going to move up there. So, of course, everyone's going to move up there. Um, I mean, it's just a bit ridiculous. Mm. So I figure then if you're within one of those LGAs, surely if you can go to Byron Bay and look for a property if I'm going to live up there, surely you could go to the next LGA and look at a property if you're going to live there. Yeah. So you in think. Victoria, you can, you, you'll can you be able to – you can't insp- physically inspect anything and there are houses selling at the moment, you know. <clears throat> that is a dumbo without seeing it. Massive dumbo. From 23rd of September, you can – if the property is vacant – you can have one person go and look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is I mean, just, looking at hundreds really of properties, isn't. it's, you just, Veronica, and you'd say it's like, sometimes you, you get completely uh, hoodwinked, I guess. Like you, you see the photos, you know the street, everything looks great. You can't you see how the front high door, And then <laughs> there's something glaringly wrong, of, you know, wrong with the property, right? It just got this weird feel. Hallways are too narrow or just feeling you know, It's really low. Yeah, um, it smells. <laughs> the neighbour's got a something out the backyard that completely, or there's a creek that's got mosquitoes. Like just things yeah. that you need to experience, and you, you know, and it wouldn't it be bad, right? If you bought a property, you got so excited, you went in there, got your keys, and then as soon as you walked in, you realised that you made a massive mistake. Um, and I'm sure there's people coming out on the other side. Uh, with that, with a million dollar plus decision. Um, yeah, so great done by Brennan. Thanks so much for coming on, mate. And um, yeah, it'll be interesting to have another chat next year sometime because uh, yeah, we'll see what's see how this election's going to go. <laughs> Thanks very much, Chris, Veronica. A pleasure as always. And great all the cheers. best with your purchase. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo. (laughs) 